the Ten Commandments may be read out of context more than any other passage in Scripture. We see this, for instance, in framed wall plaques posting the Ten Commandments as rules, rules for the household. We see it on Bible bookmarks, I don't know if you've seen these, suggesting that these verses are more important than the 31,000 others you find in Scripture. We see it even in public spaces, such as the granite monument inscribed with the Ten Commandments at the Alabama State Judicial Building. What all these uses fail to consider, though, is context. Context, context. The Ten Commandments first appeared in a context, a larger passage, a story even. And these uses, unfortunately, ignore that. Now, it's clear that some biblical passages were treasured more than others throughout history. And I think this is true of the Ten Commandments within Judaism. But our obsession as Christians with the Ten Commandments finds no strong warrant in the history of the church. If you start with the New Testament itself, you see some of the Ten Commandments scattered here and there. But the two great commandments, according to Jesus, are not found among the ten at all. Why we have isolated the Ten Commandments and considered them uniquely precious escapes me. These verses comprise God-breathed, God-breathing Scripture, yes, of course, but so do the verses which come before and the verses which come after. What I want to do this morning, then, is honor the Ten Commandments as Christian Scripture by interpreting them first in their original context, passage, or story. Then what I'd like to do is trace how the Bible interprets the Ten Commandments before applying them finally to ourselves. So that is my plan for this morning. But before we go any further, friends, let's take a moment to pray. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for these words of life words that we are to treasure, words that we are to hold in our hearts. This morning, Lord, I pray that you would interpret these words for us. Jesus, that you would stand up here explaining them to us, helping us see exactly how it is we are to live in response to these words. Touch us this morning, Jesus. May this gathering together galvanize us to engage in your work of kingdom building throughout the week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus 20, Exodus chapter 20. And as you turn, I will say a few words by way of context. Context is key. 
So if you recall, in Exodus chapter 3, Exodus 3, God appears to Moses in the burning bush. Remember that story? Now in that story, the setting is rather significant. And I'll just read a few words from that passage again as you turn to chapter 20. Back in Exodus 3, it says, Moses led the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God, which some think is Mount Sinai, Exodus 3. And God called to Moses out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And God said to him, do not come near Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Horeb, Sinai, holy ground. Later in the chapter, God says to Moses, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people out of Egypt. But Moses said, Who am I that I should bring Israel out of Egypt? And remember, friends, God said, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign that I have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve me on this very mountain. Mount Horeb, some would say Mount Sinai, chapter 3. Well, fast forwarding a bit to chapter 12, the people are liberated from Egypt. They're allowed to leave. Chapter 14, we get the parting of the Red Sea. We talked about this. Chapter 16, there's the manna in the wilderness. 17, the water from the rock, which Mike preached about. And in chapter 19, the people approach the region of Sinai. And then we get our passage. So Exodus 20, friends, we're going to be reading a couple excerpts you can see in the bulletin. Exodus 20, we'll start at verse 1. And as you are able, friends, would you now stand for the reading of God's word? And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. You may be seated. What I want to do first, friends, is examine Exodus 20 in its original Hebrew context. The first thing I want to say is that the phrase, the Ten Commandments, is not present in the Hebrew text. 
This is a heading that we have attached to it in our English versions. What I mean is there's nothing in the text to signal or indicate that this passage should be isolated and read any differently from the words which come right before it and the words which come after it. You can see that verse 2 in chapter 20 bleeds right into verse 3. And I tried to bring that out in my reading with no pause. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, etc., etc., etc. In other words, because I've already been God for you, because I have delivered you from the land of Egypt, because I have bound my life to yours, this is how you must live. God, friends, has already bound himself to the people in a kind of marriage covenant. He's bought their redemption from Egypt, and he's bound himself to them as a partner, almost as a spouse. The Ten Commandments function, then, as a marriage contract or a set of vows, at least on Israel's part. Israel has been redeemed already, and this is how they're to flourish with God in the land. The Ten Commandments also, we see, are a kind of prelude to the rest of the laws that you'll read in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. The first four of the Ten Commandments, many say, are vertical or God-oriented commands. The latter six commands, it'd be great if it was five and five, but the latter six are horizontal or people-oriented. What we see then in the first four commands is what proper worship looks like, what love of God looks like. And in the latter six, we see what proper society looks like, what love of other, in other words, looks like. Proper worship, as we see in these first four commands, is exclusive and honoring. Exclusive and honoring. I'm not going to spend too much time delving into each command. Perhaps in our time afterwards we can do that, but I want to treat them as two groups. Proper worship is exclusive and honoring. You see this in verse 3, which like I said, bleeds into, is related to verse 2. Because I have liberated you from Egypt, I have been God for you for generations. You shall have no other gods before me. We saw before that God is unlike the other gods, the Canaanite, Mesopotamian, Egyptian gods, who perhaps have a certain jurisdiction, the god of the sea, the god of agriculture, the god of war. These gods have a particular name that relates to their specialty. God is not like other gods. He says, I will be who I will be. I am who I am. God exists in a mode that is utterly distinct from all of these other fictions that are worshipped in these ancient cultures. He says, therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. Exclusive. Related to this is verse 4, which 
Some Jews have even interpreted as part of the singular command in verse 3. Therefore, you shall not make for yourself a carved image of anything in the universe to worship it. This is exactly the sort of activity you see in the surrounding nations when they had pantheons of gods who were attached to different localities, different powers, and they would create these idols and worship them. To worship Yahweh in this way is to consider Him on the same plane as these other deities and is to completely misunderstand the nature of the God of Israel. Worship of God is exclusive, and you can start to see it is also honoring, honoring. Jumping to verse 7, it says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What does this mean? It seems that this has to do with respecting the divine name. Hallowed be thy name. Keeping the reputation, the nature, the status of God in high repute. Not abusing it. Not using it in a public setting grasping for power. Not, not using it in illicit practices like divination, sorcery. Not using it in a court of law in a way that is flippant and cavalier, but respecting, honoring the name of God. Lastly, we see in verses 8 and 9, and continuing through that passage that we didn't read, honor God's Sabbath, Shabbat. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, He created Sabbath. And I would argue that he is still Sabbathing. On the seventh day, God showed us that what matters is not only production, construction, growth. What matters is sitting, stopping, resting, and being present to what one has created. To continue to sell and buy, to produce, to work without stopping for seven days and to do it again is dishonoring to God. To live in such a way that is obsessed with production, obsessed with advancement, and that never stops to smell the roses is improper worship. Proper worship is exclusive and honoring. And the people are guided in their worship so that they might flourish in their life in the land. The proper worship of God, then, I would say, is essential to their holiness and also their health. Health. In the English language, I've noted this, that the word holy and the word healthy are etymologically connected. Holy, hail, healthy, hallow, heal. These commands are not meant to restrict, to frustrate, and to limit, but rather to ensure enduring health and flourishing for the people of Israel in the land. Well, the latter six commands, the horizontal commands, show us what love of other, what proper society in Israel looks like. And we see that proper society is orderly and just. I would say orderly and just. 
Starting at verse 12, we get this famous command that parents love, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This is the only command that's not a prohibition, do not do this, do not do this. It's the only command with a promise attached to it. I would argue, though, contextually, that this promise applies to all the commands. You shall have no other gods before me, so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, etc., etc. Many think that this command bridges the gap between the first set of four and the latter set of six. We are to honor God in our worship, and in an analogous way, we are to honor the persons whom God have placed in our lives to care for us, especially as we are young our parents. We are to respect, to honor, to act toward our parents in a way that is similar to the way that we're to act toward God. Honor your father and your mother. We see that the basis, the foundation of a healthy society, one that is honoring to God and that ensures the health of its citizens, is one based upon a properly ordered household. A healthy family. Only when such respect is present, when contentment with the roles within the house are respected between parents and children, can a healthy society be built, it seems. The following commandments are just two words each in Hebrew, very short. You shall not murder. I could say much about this, but it actually doesn't, the word doesn't refer to any kind of killing, but a very specific kind of killing, a killing out of a desire for vengeance, bloodthirst, a killing that is illegal, that is murder, that dishonors one's right to life, that a proper society is based on. Related is verse 14, you shall not commit adultery you shall not dishonor and ignore the sacred institution of marriage that is meant to glue households and families together so that you can build a healthy society from it. To defile those bonds would result in utter chaos and disorder. And we see some of that happening in modern societies today. You shall not steal, verse 15, you shall honor the boundaries of one's property, one's livestock, one's land. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In other words, you shall not obstruct justice. Lying in a court of law, spreading falsehood so that justice cannot be served. And lastly, verse 17, you shall not covet, related to verse 15, you shall not covet Desire in your heart what your neighbor has. In other words, you shall be content, content with the boundaries that are drawn around your house, your family, your land. This is envisioning an ideal society in which there is no poverty, in which there is no oppression, no slavery. So Moses is not saying be content with your position, uh, which could be that of a beggar or someone who is abused and homeless? No. He's envisioning this proper society in which people have received gifts from the Lord and they respect 
the edges, the boundaries around it. These commandments, the latter six, are not meant to be overly restrictive or condemnatory, but rather they're meant to help Israel build a society, a culture that is holy, healthy, and enduring. If followed, the Ten Commandments will help Israel thrive in their covenant with Yahweh. What I need you to know is that they are not commands which lead to salvation or favor with God if obeyed. The people are already favored. They've literally already been saved from Egypt. Rather, these are guidelines or parameters within which Israel can thrive in the new life that's already been given to them. I think that is how the Ten Commandments appear in their original context. Well, what I want to do now, quickly, is look at how the Bible interprets the Ten Commandments. And we're going to be jumping around, so I'm going to do some summarizing for us this morning. Let's begin first with the Old Testament with the book of Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy is set uh, after the people have wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, after this situation at Mount Sinai, and so they're about to enter into the land. And this is a different group than the group Moses is speaking to. This is a new generation of Israelites, and so Moses is reiterating a lot of the things he says in Exodus and Leviticus to this new generation that's about to enter the land of promise. You see in Deuteronomy 5, version 2 of the Ten Commandments. (laughs) And they're basically the same, except for the Sabbath commandment, which is kind of interesting. You can look at that in your own time. But right after this restatement of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5, we get Deuteronomy 6. And in Deuteronomy 6, we have the Shema, a common liturgy recited by Jews throughout history, and we get what's been called the Great Commandment. And this is what Moses says. He says, This is the commandment that the Lord commanded me to teach you, that you may multiply in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Here is the commandment. You shall love... The Lord your God, with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. These words shall be on your heart. You shall teach them to your children. You shall bind them on your hand. You shall write them on your doorposts and on your gates. Friends, if the Ten Commandments were really that special to warrant a different kind of interpretation than all the other words in Scripture, you'd expect, after their restatement, detailed explanations of each commandment, right? We don't get that in Deuteronomy 6. Instead, we get a great commandment, which is not taken from the ten, but is a reduction of it. Keep that in mind. The next Old Testament text I'd like to look at comes in Leviticus chapter 19, and that is before Deuteronomy, but I think it'll make sense why I'm arranging it this way. Leviticus includes many of the detailed laws that Moses 
gave to the people after the Ten Commandments. So still that earlier generation near Sinai. And we get some laws about the treatment of neighbors in Leviticus 19. This is what Moses writes. He says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Well, if you move to the New Testament, you don't have to, but Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, you get this story about a rich young ruler. And this rich young man approaches Jesus and asks, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus recites verbatim five of the Ten Commandments. Have you done this? Have you done this? Have you done this? But he also includes Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we see this random command lodged in Leviticus attached to the Ten Commandments already in Matthew. And if you move just a few chapters forward to Matthew 22, we get the New Testament's version of the great commandment. It says, When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. He said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Deuteronomy 6.5. He says, this is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18. Jesus then says, on these two commandments depend all the law, and the prophets. When asked what is the great commandment, Jesus doesn't quote any of the Ten Commandments. But he quotes the the summary of them in Deuteronomy 6, love God, which I think applies to those first four, and then the summary of them in Leviticus 19, love others, which I think applies to the latter six. The Ten Commandments, like sap, are boiled down into these two commandments, into syrup. But the Apostle Paul goes a step further, and he makes maple candy for us, guys. (laughs) Lastly, Romans 13. You don't have to turn there. The Apostle Paul, Pharisee of Pharisees, whose credentials we heard from Hope this morning in Philippians, He says, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal or covet, Ten Commandments, and any other commandment, Paul the Jew says, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love, the virtue of love, is the fulfilling of the law. 
It is striking to see how the Bible itself interprets the Ten Commandments. From Leviticus and Deuteronomy all the way to Matthew and Romans, it's not the rules themselves that are in focus. But it's the virtue, the posture which pervades them all. And that is love. The Ten Commandments are eclipsed by the two great commandments given by Jesus. That is love God and love others. Within Scripture itself, even, we don't see an obsession with the Ten Commandments as a set of rules. We don't see an effort to explain each of the ten, to hold fast to each of the ten, to enforce each of the ten. Now, hear me, I am not denying their importance. We probably shouldn't murder and steal. Okay, just for the record. But the trajectory of Scripture is to reduce the Ten Commandments to the single virtue of love. Rather than tablets of stone inscribed with ten rules to rigidly follow, we as Christians have been given new hearts, hearts full of God's Spirit. We've been given the spirit of love which inspired the Ten Commandments in the first place. These commandments then are not to be hung on as rules by which we find favor with God. No. Rather, they are to melt down or boil down into the one virtue which seems to have inspired them. And that is love. Love. May we, friends, be a people known ultimately for our love. A people who make the most of our new, already redeemed existence by loving God and loving others. The Ten Commandments show us how to do this. They show us how to love God and others well. So along with all the other laws in Scripture, they are important, critically important. Not as rules to obey, to be saved, but as guidelines to help us love. Treating the Ten Commandments, the law, the Bible as a set of rules by which to earn God's favor or God's salvation may be the most out-of-context reading possible. This morning, then, let's return to a proper reading of the Ten Commandments, a Christian reading, which says all that matters in the end is love. Let's pray. Jesus, you model for us precisely what this love looks like. It is not a love that tolerates everything, as we saw in our reading from Matthew. 
It is a love that is concerned ultimately with the health of God's creation. Help us, Lord, to be a place of health, of holiness. A place in which important things are valued and less important things are ignored. Help us to be a place where people can meet you, Jesus, where they can be trained in true love and can experience the life in the land that you promised Israel. We love you and pray that you'd help us love you and love others well. Be with us still this morning as we continue to worship you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.